G'day and welcome to the Out of the Saddle podcast. First of all, apologies, I'm not feeling very well and I think my voice will tell you exactly that. In this episode, we have part two of my conversation with the body mechanic. Last week, I spoke with Mark Green about bike fits and injury. So we've heard from the body and now it's time to hear from the mechanic. Dan Bonello is not only an experienced bike mechanic, he's also a UCI Asia Tour and Australian National Road Series rider. We spoke about how he got into racing, the Australian scene, how he juggles work and training, and also the current trends in bikes and bike mechanics. We're back at the body mechanic and back underneath the bridge. Who said podcasting was glamorous? We've done the body with Mark Green in a previous episode, and it's now it's time to do the mechanic with current NRS and UCI Asia Tour writer Dan Bonello. Welcome to the Other Saddle Podcast, Dan. Thank you very much. So what got you into riding? Uh, I was at an age where basically I've got two older brothers and anything that either they were doing or their friends were doing was what I thought I needed to be doing. So yeah, my brother was really good friends with a guy named James Williamson um, and he, he was just doing a lot of mountain biking at the time so I decided I needed to somehow acquire a mountain bike and get into get into riding and I grew up in the Southern Highlands so this club scene down there is really strong both on and off the road so yeah I got myself a mountain bike got myself a road bike and was just doing the weekly club races and uh yeah like started doing some state racing and stuff but yeah usually just traveled away with James a lot um and yeah just got a, got stuck into it that way so you had the mountain biking and the road bike You've sort of ended up more on the road now. When did the sort of mountain biking stop being the sort of top priority? Oh, I went through a pretty long progression. So I was doing a lot of road as a junior and I just, in hindsight, wasn't very good at it. Um, like I competed against guys like Matt Goss, who's about to retire. Um, who else? There was some really good, Dan McConnell, guys like that. And I just wasn't even anywhere near their league back then. I just don't think I trained hard enough and was probably a bit underdeveloped. Um, and so I kind of stuck with the mountain biking. Then I moved to Canada straight out of high school um, and actually got really into my downhill riding for the best part of six years. I was just Is that doing, big in Canada? Pardon me? Downhill, is that big in Canada? It's huge. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's becoming a massive revenue stream for a lot of the ski resorts over there. And there's, I think, trying to figure out the best way to sustainably build trails and they know that there's plenty of money to keep them going in the winter. Is that something that we're, is that something we're doing here in Australia? We have ski resorts that don't do a lot during the summer. Is that something that we could do better? Yeah, oh, we could. I mean, it's always a bit of a battle with national parks and stuff like that. Um, and they're super careful with that sort of stuff in Australia for all the right reasons, really. But, I mean, you look at the impact that the snow industry has on a national park and it's probably far greater than a mountain bike trail would, given that... You know, it's not sort of on-piste, off-piste like it is with uh, with skiing. But, yeah, I think that Falls Creek in particular probably pushing forward as far as ski resorts go. But I think there's just a lot of towns actually getting into it, from my knowledge. I know Orange, they've got, got a really good park's gone in there. Um, and then that town in Tasmania called Derby, it's like an old copper mining town that's essentially close to abandoned, and now they've... The government's put a bunch of money and gotten some really good trail builders back in there and it's just completely revived the town. So there is plenty of life for it outside of the competitive realm of mountain biking. It, cause it, is there a bit of a gold mine there as far as, as, far as developing 
a town for cycling goes because uh, I guess cyclists are generally a little bit older, they have a bit more money and a bit more time. Uh, yeah. Is that sort of something that more towns are getting into or could get, could get into? Yeah, I think so. And I, like a lot of the young population there, uh, you know, if like if you spend the entire winter on your skis, it, like particularly in a ski resort, and then you've got the whole summer, like it's particularly in Australia where it's school holidays, like, you know, kids want something to do and they're going to be gravitated towards something like that. It's similar in a lot of ways to skiing that you get to own cool equipment. It's not like running where you just own a pair of joggers. You actually get to own awesome stuff and tinker away with it. And yeah, like I guess Mount, Mount Beauty is probably the town that springs to mind the most. Like it's just a little haven, the amount of good riders that have come out of there um, across many disciplines as well. Like you've got the Vanderpoke brothers and yeah, plenty of other guys have come out of there. So you now race in the NRS and the UCI Asia Tour. How did you get into that? That's for Australia level, the top level of racing. Uh, yeah, essentially for like the amateur guys, it's the top level and there is a huge amount of depth in it. But um, I've sort of moved away from the NRS just for various reasons. Like the calendar is in, I guess, a fair bit of disrepair at the moment. And the there team, has been some criticism recently of that. Yeah, I mean, without racing it, it's kind of unfair for me to be too critical and I'm not in, in a position or not putting myself in a position to do much about it. Um, you know, I'm still on the racing side of things where, I, you know, you have to be selfish in some ways and you just want race days presented to you. And, you know, we're in an age where there's lots of teams and lots of opportunities out there. So you just want to be on a team and you want to be told what the calendar is and go from there. Um, I th yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it's dead. I, I think it's treading water at the moment. There's definitely, cycling is so popular for, I think across a lot of um, demographics, but you know, for people like me who are competitive and want to do it, it's not an uncool or unfashionable sport. There's plenty of entry level avenues into the sport, whether it be from equipment or clubs. Um, so yeah, I just think that there just needs to be a coming together, I guess, of the people, the both event organisers and Cycling Australia, and just figure out a way to make it sustainable because I think the traditional views on sponsorship and how to run a race don't really work. And then Cycling Australia, I know, stepped in a couple of years ago to try and take over a lot of those super crucial races that actually have quite a lot of history in Australia and run them themselves. But Talk like Grafton, Inverell, Melbourne, Warnable, those Yeah, things. I think it was more like maybe Tour of Murray River and Gippsland and stuff like that. So historically, I think they were run by a guy named Andrew Craven, I think, don't quote me on that. But yeah, he sort of ran it in a format that I think allowed it to make money, but in terms of a stepping stone to the European scene, which everyone kind of sees as the, the ultimate goal for a lot of us young guys. Um, yeah, I think that was kind of not, you know, having two stages a day and crits around a primary school was probably not the format to get riders developed and ready, as close to ready for that European step. But so Cycling Australia came in and then I think on paper, the riders probably saw a lot of these stages, like longer one-day stages, um, probably a bit more reminiscent of the stage racing that we watch you know, on Eurosport throughout the year, and it looks great, but... Without TV rights, you can't make any yeah, money out of it. Exactly. So, um, how have you balanced uh, racing and then also working? Because it's, it's like 
racing in the NRS or even in Australia generally isn't very lucrative. There's not many people who make a lot of money out of it. You have to work. How have you balanced those two priorities? Um, I'm super lucky in terms of employment. I think that's the biggest thing for me. Like living in Sydney, I'm away from home. So I don't have, you know, I have to pay rent and stuff like that. And I guess sustain a, a certain level of living. But yeah, with work here, I'm super lucky. Like when we had Blair, Martin, who started the body mechanic and obviously Mark Green as well. Like they just have a full understanding of people want to be competitive. Like we had a runner here, James Nipperus. He was training for the Com Games and ended up going to Glasgow a couple of years ago and he was working towards Rio. Um, so they, they definitely get it. Like Blair's race at the high le- highest level on, uh, you know, in his running career and then had a pretty successful little road career. So I guess for me, it's just that understanding that, yeah, we'd rather you here making money and talking to our customers, but yeah, you're only going to get this chance to go through this period of my life once. So I'm, I'm pretty keen to take the opportunities that are presented to me at the moment. So you're not done with racing, there's more to go? Uh, no, I just, well, I don't think so. Like I, I just got back from a trip... Uh, we did Japan with the team that I'm with, so we did uh, Kirito uh, That's St. George Merida, so they're actually over in China as we speak. They're probably about to clip in for stage three today um, at a Tour of Taihu Lake. Um, yeah, so I just got back from racing with them in Japan. We did Tour of Hokkaido, which was three days, and then we had a bit of a break and went into Tour of Poyang Lake in China. And yeah, that was probably the biggest block of racing I've done since early summer this year. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of enjoyment comes from every day on the bike, whether it's wet or dry or whether you're at the front of the race or at the back. I mean, you have your moments and I, I still enjoy it a lot. I think it's a, yeah, it, it gives me a lot of positivity. So how do you keep riding, not necessarily as a racing, but keep riding fun? One of my big fears is that it stops being fun one day and I want to put down the bike and never pick it up again. How do, you, how do you keep it fun? Um, for me, cycling's always... I guess it started out with... Like, I've always had a competitive approach to it, but at the same time, like, even when I was really young, it was more about the people that I surrounded myself with on the bike and to a huge degree off the bike, like a lot of my friends are from cycling. So I've never been one to lock myself away and do ergo sessions non-stop. Like, I'll always try and do outdoor riding and uh, just keep it social. So especially in Sydney where the riding is, you know, it's not the greatest on the planet, but the riding is actually good. There's plenty of people to ride with. I just, you know, yeah, just always have people to ride with. All right, so now I want to do the fast five. It's five questions I ask every guest of the Out of the Saddle podcast. Yeah. What is what coffee you drink? Uh, I just drink a piccolo. Piccolo. Yeah. Personal favorite also. Uh, do you watch pro cycling? Yeah, too much of it. Do I you think, enjoy it? Uh, yeah, too much. I think the other night I sat down and watched this year's Strata Bianchi for no no good reason. That's re- that's replays of right. Yeah, I knew the, knew the story, knew who won it. That's and, next uh, level. Okay, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, what's your dream event to attend or compete in? Oh. Uh, I mean, probably the Tour Down Under would be a good one. It's sort of for any pro cyclist, anyone who's getting paid, I guess that's their... Any, anyone in Australia, that's their hometown event, right? But um, 
yeah, I've sort of always had a bit of a running joke that I'll never go there as a spectator. I'll only go if I qualify. But I think uh, my performances at national championships would have to go a lot better than they have. All right. As a former Adelaide boy, I would encourage you to get down there, even if you wait till you finish racing. It's a fantastic spot. Uh, what's your? What was your first bike you've ever owned? Mm, oh, my first road bike, I guess, like proper race bike. I had a giant OCR one, I think, that I saved and saved, and then Mum probably kicked in a fair bit of money for it. Um, yeah, so that was it. Alloy carbon four, black and white. I loved it. Nice. What was? What's your proudest moment in cycling? Um, starting the Herald Sun Tour this year was probably a big one. Like that's one of the most historically renowned events in Australia, and it's you know it sort of went off the calendar for a little while, and it's come back in varying degrees. Froomey was there this year. Yeah, yeah. Like Team Sky showed up. There was um, you know Orica always send a, an awesome team there. So yeah, I was. It's, it's just one of those ones that's always. There's just a few for some reasons like. I always remember reading about them in magazines when I was young, like Tour of Langkawi is maybe another one that just, I sort of know that it's the level that I could could race at. And yeah, the opportunity presented itself to our team this year. And uh, yeah, I was stoked to, to to go there and have a pretty good race. So yeah, I was real happy with it. You gonna get to any of those this year? Uh, well, Cadell Evans Road Race is out of our league now. So we're just at the continental level. It's gone up to world tour level, I believe. So, so that does that have, mean you need to be properly invited, or you can't even be invited now? Well, we couldn't even get an invite now. Okay. Um, I think a pro quanti team probably could, but you know, draft pack's gone now, so they might bring out some European ones. I'm not even sure. Sure. But that's cool, I think, because that race needs to keep going. I think it's really, really good for the Australian culture or cycling culture. But um, yeah, Sun Tour. We're certainly hoping to get an invite, so fingers crossed. All right, let's talk about mechanics. Your job here is the mechanic or head mechanic, is that right? Yeah, so I I mean, I've got a pretty cool mix role here. Um, I do all the admin and front of house stuff for the physio side of the business. So I get to spend a lot of time with our customers just catching up, telling them telling them that. How, how things have been um, and then yeah I run the workshop which is uh, ties in really well with the bike fitting side of things that was sort of always Blair's one of his ideas that he wanted to get off the ground and when we moved in here to Bay 9 uh, Bay 10 three years ago just about three years ago we finally had the space to to bring myself on as a mechanic and yeah so it's worked out worked out really well so you, you, have you always done the work on your own bikes? Is that where the sort of knowledge and, and um, skills have come from? Yeah, absolutely. That's where it started for me. Like I used to work on my downhill bikes on the back patio at mum and dad's place and drop screws through the floorboards there and, yeah, probably get a lot of things wrong. But, um, yeah, and then I moved over to Whistler, Canada in 2004 and I think I got my first job in a bike shop over there. It's kind of... Had a few jobs around Sydney, like Clarence Street Cycle, I think has just employed employed about every mechanic that's now working in Sydney. So you mentioned before dropping the screws through the floorboards. Is there things that you would now, as a professional mechanic, recommend people don't try to do at home and just bring it into a mechanic? Or is there something that everyone can have a crack at? Uh, oh, there's some stuff that, yeah. I guess it depends on the person's level of ability. Maybe try... And I, a simple IKEA 
flat pack first and see how you go. If you can get through that, maybe you can change your cassette or put a fresh chain on. But I think a lot of it, like a lot of the bike stuff is, it's super easy to get your head around. It's just the finer details, like tuning a nice high-end road group set or, um, yeah, like getting the cables on a campy group set to run nice. Like it's just, I guess it's second nature for myself and a lot of good mechanics. And I was fortunate enough to be taught all the road stuff by a really good mechanic who's still kicking around Julian Pellegrini and uh, another guy Alex Malone and yeah it sort of put me in good stead but I think with all the sort of online self-education you can do nowadays if you've got the tools give it a go there's always a mechanic who'll help you out is it that's what I was going to say is there any sort of horror stories where someone's had a crack at trying to change their cables or something and then just botched it and just bought in this basket case uh off the top of my head, nothing too crazy. I mean, I'm sure some bike shops have some interesting things. I can't think of anything right away. But yeah, I've seen like people try and chew their own wheels and it just go horribly wrong or just using the wrong tools is probably probably the biggest example. But I'm just so conscious of it these days because I actually now own a couple of motorbikes and one of them I brought in from the States and it's like a bit of an old cafe racer and it's... I can just see myself being one of my customers. So I'm always pretty sensitive to it. Like you don't want to make people fit, belittle them or, you know, it discourages them from, from uh, doing it themselves. Like if you don't have the tools, that's one thing. But, you know, if you do and you're giving the crack, that's, that's probably the right thing to do. So what are the things people are doing to their bikes? What do they want to upgrade? What do they want to change? Uh, everyone it's Sydney everyone wants to ride around on carbon clinches I get asked that so often like what's a pair of carbon clinches that I can ride around on every day do you recommend carbon clinches yeah sure if they buy them from us <laughs> so no, I think I mean wheel technology and stuff like that it's just so well it, that's one thing but you know having the support from a product and whoever looks after that product is also a big part of it so if things do go wrong if you are riding a lot, riding every day, then yeah, you kind of want it to be easy to sort out or someone to give you a set of spare wheels while it's taken care of. But I've heard some horror stories of people descending on carbon clinches and yeah, those uh, are... <laughs> bubbling out the brake track and yeah. losing a front tyre. Yeah, those are probably the cheap unbranded ones from right. Alibaba.com. But no, there's, yeah, there's ways to avoid it. Yeah, so... Yeah. Apart from carbon clinches, is there anything else? Does everyone want an aero bike? Does everyone want to have aero bars, or do they want integrated bar instead? What's what's the new things that are happening? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a bit conflicting here at the body mechanic. Like, even from my own perspective, like I always sort of err towards traditional stuff that just works in terms of the parts that I run and what works with me traveling and racing. So, like, I'll, for example, I'll run alloy bar stem and post just because. If I crash on it, it's probably going to be safe to keep riding, um, and it's certainly a lot cheaper to replace. But you know, you see some people come in, I guess, from a bike fit perspective with integrated posts and stuff like that, like one piece bar and stems, and they just make it hard for us to set. Well, for Brad, our bike fitter, to set them up in the most ideal position. So we can always work within a certain degree of flexibility, but um, yeah, it's. It's the bike industry. There's always trends going around. Aero bikes at the moment are one thing yeah. that is super strong, and yeah, for all the right reasons. Disc brakes on road bikes. 
Uh, you've, you've done mountain biking, you've done road biking. You're probably in a great position to give an opinion on that. I don't know. I've been told they cut people in half. Or oh, these are yeah. yeah. No, I think that, yeah, they've already put it on the table to bring it back for 2017, I believe. So I think... You think it's, it's inevitable? Yeah. And it's there's no question that it's better. People saying that they're overpowered or stuff like that. It's ridiculous. I've ridden on them for years and years off the road and now I've got my spare bike sort of wet weather bike is a Cannondale with disc brakes on it and yeah I think it's it's totally makes sense just makes so much sense tubes are tubeless like uh, is there a big advantage to having running tubeless tyres or because me for one I'm a bit scared of it to be honest like, I like the security of having a tube and knowing how it works and... yeah I'd, I think for the road tubes have never made uh, tubeless has never made much sense for the mountain bikes it definitely does where you can run lower pressures and have your sealant tucked away in there and even on gravel bikes and stuff but for the road you don't want to be getting a puncture trying to rely on some latex sealant to seal something that would normally be you know over 90 psi and then if that doesn't work you got to deal with all that sealant on the side of the road put a fresh tube in change the valve yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah uh so what do you think's coming up next in bike technology we've seen um like I said, the uh, the disc brakes, the you know, tubeless is coming more more um, prominent. Wider tyres. What's going to be the next big thing you think in the road cycling technology? Um, hidden motors. Hidden motors. <laughs> no, I think. Um, are, are they a thing you think in like the recreational peloton? Do you think people are reckon rocking? Uh, you know? I don't know. Apparently, they're pretty expensive to buy. So I don't know if they are maybe as widespread as people think. But um, I think in road bikes. I don't know. Disc brakes will probably be the yeah the thing that catches on the most, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens with all the time trial bikes and stuff because they've slackened the rules on the three to one ratio. And we've just seen uh, all the new models to get yeah. come out. A lot of crazy ones for yeah. for triathletes, where sort of a lot of the UCI rules wouldn't wouldn't sort of um, counter it. Think we've seen yeah. some crazy designs come in. Yeah, do you think that's going to make its way through to the program? I don't know if they'll go that far, that slack, uh, just because it'll, it just sort of becomes too prohibitive, for, I think, for professionals and, you know, doesn't put everyone on a level playing field if you've, if you know, if one team can have that crazy new Cervelo and then everyone else is still on a sort of more traditional two-triangle TT bike, then it's kind of against what the UCI are working for. In triathlon, I think, you know, go nuts. That's a different sport, but... I think in terms of the cycling industry, e-bikes are, are what are the next big thing. There's absolutely no question. They've just got to become, I guess, more affordable and the battery life has to go up. But, you know, you look at everything from mobile phones to drones and stuff like that, like battery life has just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Even the lights on your bike, like a few years ago, you couldn't have a little USB thing on an elastic band as powerful as it was. I remember my first lights, they the battery had to sit in a bidding cage, so it's kind of prohibitive as to how long you could ride. Do you think those e-bikes will be a bit of a, uh, a stepping stone for people to get into cycling, or do you think people who buy an e-bike will always ride an e-bike? I hope so. I mean, I think they've always been kicking around a bit in the commuter market with, like, gazelles and stuff like that. Um, I kind of think they're a cool idea if they're not too out of control powerful but you know like you can imagine someone goes away to 
a holiday on you know in a place like Bright or something, and normally they'd only go for a thirty or forty k ride. But if you can go for a hundred to one hundred fifty k ride, like the stuff you'll see and the enjoyment that you get out of being able to do that much more of more riding in a place like that, then why not have an e road bike? Like it, it, you know, sure it's going to be heavy, heavy as sin, but yeah, I think it could could be pretty door opening for a lot of people. And just to end, I want to cover a some of the basic maintenance people can do to sort of prevent a catastrophic failure on their bike. What are some things you recommend that people do regularly to their bike to make sure they keep it working properly? Uh, with all the new, like DI2 and all that sort of stuff, like the maintenance is pretty low on them. Wheels stay way truer than they used to, stuff like that. I just think cleaning your stuff is what gets the best out of well the longevity of your equipment and um yeah it's just nicer to have clean stuff come into the workshop that's actually well looked after and then yeah so just degreasing it learning how to degrease and clean your frame and it just yeah it all makes a difference great well dan thanks for getting out of the saddle with me thank you so that was dan bonello mechanic racer and as i found out post the interview also part-time model has done some work doing some raffa kit so disappointed i didn't know that beforehand because i would have definitely brought that up but he was his fantastic interview um had some great insights and particularly i found the stuff about e-bikes very interesting i guess um not so much the enemy but maybe a a way forward to have people better understand cycling and cyclists That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to Dan Bonello and Mark Green from The Body Mechanic for their time and insights. I would really love to hear your feedback on these shows or any other Out of the Saddle podcast episodes. You can contact me through Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Out of the Saddle podcast. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe and leave a review. It means you'll never miss an episode and will also help other people find the show. Goodbye and thanks for getting Out of the Saddle with me. Super control freak And I'll make it look so sweet But I lost control of myself I lost control of myself Never a man to defeat Always trying to compete But I just defeated myself